you all today. Um, it's something that uh, does our hearts good to know that uh, there's a church here in Arden, Asheville area, that is faithfully uh, ministering the word. And uh, I just am so encouraged. I've uh, tried to keep up with uh, Cornerstone over the years just because we see you as a, a like-minded ministry. Uh, we're up in Brevard and uh, you guys are ministering here and so appreciate uh, Pastor Dan, his friendship. We, uh, we try to keep up along the way and just encourage. I, every time we get together, every time we uh, have a conversation, I go away encouraged and uh, just uh, what God is doing. So glad to be here to minister the word to you today. And I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would. This is why we're here. Acts chapter 20. When you're coming in for uh, one message, it's uh, sometimes a challenge to know what to do and what to bring. I've got 14 years of, of pastoral messages that uh, you, you look at and you're like, okay, well, what, what does God want uh, today? And so I was leaning heavily on Pastor Dan. What would be appropriate? What would be helpful? Uh, that is my heart today. And uh, this is where God has directed us. So so it really is a challenge, though, as you drop in in the middle of a book for a standalone message, um, the commitment that you all have to preach the word through books of the Bible, consistently building on what is happening. Uh, I am so, so committed to that as well. And uh, it's, it's much superior than just a one one off message here and there. But uh, for this, uh, let me just take a little bit of time here and, and give a quick overview of where we are dropping into the bigger storyline in the book of Acts. Uh, because the book of Acts is really a special, special book. It's a great work of literature. Uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke masterfully relates the story of how the gospel spread throughout the known world. And as you know, Acts 1-8 is the theme. It's almost an outline of the whole book, uh, where it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. And eventually, even it reaches Rome itself. This has been one of my personal favorite books to study and to preach through. So starting in chapter 17, Luke has cataloged Paul's progress through all the main cities of Asia Minor and even Macedonia. You have Thessalonica, which was the political capital. You have Athens, which is the intellectual center of the ancient world at the time. You have Corinth, which was the commercial center. And then you have Ephesus, which was the religious center. And then he made other stops along the way. But this is kind of like a travel log now as they're just going from place to place. But Paul spent most of his time and energy in these key metropolitan areas. He would come in, they would plant a church together in each city, and then strategically, as you look at it, it really makes a lot of sense to target cities. Um, I mean, we know already 55% of the world's population lives in cities even now. It's expected to increase to two-thirds by 2050. It just makes sense. You go where the people are. That's where you can reach more souls for the Lord. And then you have the idea of cities being transitive. So people are coming and going. A lot more opportunities to uh, impact people, and then they go out and take the gospel wherever they go. And so cities tend to, to really set direction for the surrounding areas as well. Uh, like it or not, urbanization has changed our culture in America drastically over the last century. Now, I don't think that means we abandon all rural areas, we move to big cities, uh, but we do go where the spiritual needs are, and uh, we should pay attention to the scripture pattern of, of Paul and his co-workers as they planted cities in the population areas. Uh, there is, by the way, just as an aside, incredible potential here 
to reach Asheville area. I've, I've been burdened for the city of Asheville for many, many years. Um, it is uh, truly a, a needy place and a strategic place in our uh, North Carolina area, especially. And I praise the Lord again for planning this point of light here. You all are seeking to reach out in this area. So in chapter 20, verse 1, we see, really have a new section. This section intermixes four travel reports with three portraits of the Christian community life in those early days. And it's almost like Luke is taking some time to gather in some loose ends, wrap up some things together before he moves on to the, the ending of his, his book. And he gives us a hint about the theme of this section at the very beginning of chapter 20, verse 1. Notice verse 1, after encouraging them, he uses that word again in verse 2. When he had given them much encouragement, he uses it again in verse 12, and it's translated as comfort there. And we'll get, we'll get to that uh, in a little bit. The word is parakaleo. Sometimes it's translated exhorted, but it contains the idea of encouragement, comfort, lifting someone up, helping them to continue on. And really, it maybe you recognize the similarity to the descriptive name of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, he's often called, or the comforter. God is an encourager to us. And so we see the seed thought for our main theme in this passage today. It's one that we're going to develop more fully along the way here this morning. This passage is all about the ministry of encouragement. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help today. Uh, we need your help as we uh, interact with your word. We always do. It's a supernatural book, and so we pray for that. So in chapter 20, we find Paul arriving in the port city of Troas, fresh from this whirlwind tour of some of the churches he had planted earlier. And he had arranged to meet a group of men there who would continue on with him to Jerusalem. And Luke lists them out in, in verse 5, and it's quite an entourage. We find out that if you go back and trace it out, these were actually hand-picked representatives from the newly planted churches from all around that region. And they were meeting Paul there for a purpose. They were going to accompany him on a very important mission to deliver the love gift that he had been collecting from the Gentile churches for the needy believers in Jerusalem. And Paul had a goal. He wanted to get to Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost. So we know that he's on a tight timetable. And really, the clock is ticking away. But he is constantly held back by the painstakingly slow nature of travel back then. I was just in Zambia, Africa, and I was complaining about how long it took to get there and how long it took that, like two days. That's nothing, right? We have nothing to complain about with travel. Everything took a long time back then. So in this case, he's forced to spend a full week in Troas. Even though he's ready to move on, he's waiting for his ship to get ready. It tells us in verse 6. But Paul is not a man to waste time. Instead, he uses the delay to encourage the believers of Troas in their faith. And really, this is a lesson that I need to be reminded of continually. Maybe you do as well. Don't let your agenda allow you to miss opportunities to minister to people. Right? If we get so locked into what I have to do, I'm a big list guy, right? And I have to check off my list. And I have to get everything done. We're going to miss chances along the way to really be useful to the Lord. And Paul didn't do that in this case. So finally now, they're all assembled together. They're rendezvousing in Troas. They're just waiting now uh, for, what, uh, for the ship to depart. And we come to verse 7. And up to this point, Luke has been moving along in the narrative at breakneck speed. I mean, he barely touches on details of any kind 
It's really just a travel journal moving from place to place. But now he pauses. He kind of slows it down a bit. And he wants us to see an important event that took place at Troas. He's giving us a glimpse, a fascinating glimpse of Christian community life in those early days. So it's now Sunday, as Luke tells us. And at this point in history of the early church, it is already a well-established practice for the believers there to gather to worship on the first day of the week. That's opposed to Saturday, as the Jews used to do. That was Jewish tradition. Paul, though, has taught his converts it's important to gather consistently, faithfully, regularly. Right. So this isn't a special called meeting. This is just their normal time of worship. But this time, the disciples at Troas are joined by Paul and his companions. There are at least eight of them, including Luke, the narrator. We see that in verses 4 and 5. And I have a feeling that this was a really joyful reunion. Uh, the Greek in verse 7 reads, we came together to break bread, right? All of these. It doesn't matter where they were from. It doesn't matter what background, what churches, what uh, cities they were from. They came together. There was a commonality they had because of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? No matter where you go, no matter uh, how far away, what culture differences there are, there's always that commonality. We can come together and worship together with the Lord. So the believers at Troas intended to eat together at some point in their worship that day. We don't know if that was some kind of special fellowship meal or if the believers were actually observing the Lord's table. Uh, the phrase breaking of bread can refer to either. Apparently back then, though, believers spent a lot of time eating together. Right? The church of Jerusalem set that precedent. Listen to Acts 2.46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So apparently Paul had introduced a similar practice to the churches that he had planted wherever he went, and he enthusiastically joined in whenever he could. And here we find the first way in which these believers encouraged each other. It was through fellowship. It was through fellowship. Let's talk about this before we continue on in the passage. We normally use this word to describe some kind of event. We're having a fellowship after church today. Right now, that's like a Baptist code word for eating. Okay, so maybe we aren't too far off the mark when we use this word in this way. We tend to like to eat together, and that's not a bad thing. In Eastern cultures, especially, sharing a meal with someone symbolizes friendship and oneness. But food was never the focus in the early church. Jesus was. They never got overly focused on what they were doing in the act of eating, because even as they were sharing a meal together, they were sharing Christ together. And certainly you can have fellowship while eating together, right? That's, that's good. That's a good practice. But biblical fellowship is much more than that. Biblical fellowship is coming together for a common purpose. And those believers knew how much they needed each other. They knew that they needed the spiritual input from other people. They knew they needed the spiritual gifts of others ministering in their lives how important it was that for them to sharpen each other in their Christian faith. They thought in terms of us rather than I, right? It was not me, it was we. That's how they lived. That's how they breathed. That's how they acted. Now, that is a mindset we tend to miss in our American individualism, right? Other cultures have a big step up in this uh, with us. But like it or not, my friend, God created you as a dependent being, right? He designed you, he designed me to need other people. 
And you can fight against that or you can embrace it. Many Christians resist God's purposes for them by refusing to commit to be a vital part of a local body of believers. They remain on the outskirts, kind of uh, spectators, dragging their feet. Don't be like that. Embrace fully the mindset of we rather than me, of us rather than I. You need the spiritual input of other believers. You need their steady influence. And, and more than that, they need you, right? You have much to offer in this body of believers. The local church is God's way of providing this kind of fellowship, this kind of uh, compatibility as we interact, as we share life together. That's really uh, God's plan for that. So let me encourage you to devote yourself to this local church by making it your hub of activity, right? Don't just say, okay, this is one thing I do. I, I kind of visit and I come on Sunday and then I go about the rest of my life. No, make this your hub of social interaction. Make this your hub of relationships. That's what God wants for you. It really starts by showing up on your regular gathering times. And you might be tempted to think, oh, well, they don't really need me. Nobody's going to miss me if I don't come to church. No, that's just not true. That's not true. If you look around this morning, even today, all of us together have gathered to affirm our faith in Christ and devotion to God. Right? You have come together to worship the Lord with your fellow believers. That's an encouragement just to be there, right? Just to have that kind of interaction in a full room like this on a Sunday morning. That's a blessing. Fellowship is vital for believers, especially as the world grows more and more hostile. We're going to need this fellowship more and more. Uh, it's like a platoon of soldiers moving into enemy territory. It affirms, I'm not in this fight alone, right? And, and if you're tempted to think it really doesn't matter if I... Yeah, if I'm faithful at church, remind yourself that fellowship gives great encouragement to God's people. The very act of you being in that kind of a setting is an encouragement. So let me encourage you to commit to develop deep relationships with this local church. Because being here is just a start. It's a start, but it's only a start. Instead of coming in and just sitting, walking around, talking, asking questions, getting to know, interacting, connecting with relationships, listening to what people say, following up on a prayer request. That's where fellowship is going to be enhanced in your local setting. Biblical fellowship includes seeking to use your gifts in meaningful ways to encourage the body of Christ. I met one man, he said, every time I come to church, I have the mindset, I'm going to use my spiritual gifts today, right? And I'm not going to leave until I do, right? Even if I'm the last person out, I'm going to make sure that I am using what God has given me. We need each other. So here's the first encouragement that we can gather. It's encouragement through fellowship. So what, what, what else went on during that Sunday gathering in Troas? Well, look at the next part of verse 7. Paul talked to them. All right, now one of the unique aspects of Acts is that Luke devoted significant space to recording messages that were preached by men like Peter and Stephen and Paul at pivotal times, right? And, and there are a lot of those scattered throughout the book of Acts. Now, it's not here, right? Uh, but we know the word talked here, translated as talk, appears 10 times in the book of Acts, and it carries the idea of reasoning and discussing and even debating. And it's really a code word for preaching here, right? And, and, and it's normally, though, in the context of interaction with unbelievers, but not this time, not this time. 
Even a surface reading of the book of Acts reveals that Paul was all about ministering God's word to everyone he met, both to Jew and Gentiles, friend, enemy, saved, lost, it didn't matter. Paul ministered the word wherever he went. In the verses leading up to this specific passage, we see him faithfully ministering the word of God all along this encouragement tour through Macedonia and Greece, and especially in Corinth where he spent three months but also in his other stops as well. When everything seemed to be against him, Paul never turned inwardly, right? Even when the Corinthian church seemed to be on the brink of disaster, he kept on encouraging them with the word. Uh, Even when our bodies had no rest, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within, he continued ministering the word. He did that in Ephesus as well. You see, even when Paul himself needed encouragement, he kept on encouraging others by ministering the word wherever he went. And as he did that, he himself was encouraged as well. Right? I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in a very discouraging point in your life. Maybe you're facing some very difficult things. It, My friend, the best thing you can do is be around the word of God. Right? You need that. You need to minister that to others as well. And as you do, what you find is it resonates in your own heart. Don't turn inward. Right? Continue ministering. And boy, did Paul preach at Troas. The word talked in verse 7 is in the imperfect tense. It means there was no end in sight, right? Paul knows he's leaving the next day. Most likely, he knows he'll never see these dear believers again. So he keeps on preaching. He goes all afternoon on into the evening. He is so burdened to give them important divine truth that he preaches until midnight and then all the way till daybreak. Right, and here we have a glimpse of the iron determination of Paul. He served all day, preached all night, and then he walked 20 miles and boarded a ship for a long journey. Right? He was ministering God's word, and that was his number one priority. He put it above sleeping, eating, personal comfort. Now, Paul is an excellent example of living life for others, denying my own needs for the needs of others. He gave encouragement through the ministry of the word. Now, let's take a moment here and consider what it means for us today. For starters, preaching is not popular in our culture today. But the pattern is very clear for us in Scripture. We need to keep the preaching of God's Word primary in our churches. Right? I'm so grateful for the emphasis that your church places on the ministry of the Word, especially through sound expositional preaching. Folks, ministry fads are going to come and go, but God promises that The preaching of his word will never lose relevance. Solid preaching serves to bolster the faith of those who hear it. And I do hope that you're committed to placing yourself under the ongoing ministry of the word at your church. We need this kind of steady exposure to God's word to counteract the influences around us. All around us, there are pressures being brought to bear on believers. And we need this kind of continual reminder I like to think of of the the Sunday morning time in the Word as like a tuning fork where you hit the note and then it resonates in our lives throughout the rest of the week, right? That's what it does. It it tunes our hearts to God's Word. And we need that steady exposure. And you you don't underestimate the long-term influence it'll have in your life, in the lives of your family, in the lives of your children, right? Don't underestimate it. It's not always going to be drastic or sudden change, right? It doesn't have to be like an epiphany moment, but it's like an ongoing bent. It's pushing us towards God. 
that's what we need continually. Uh, and, and I think you'll find as you expose yourself to the word over years, then it truly will change your thinking. You'll find that it, it really just continues on throughout the day because it's what you're immersing yourself in. You're more in line with God's word. But, you know, the ministering the word isn't just about preaching. All of us have responsibility to give out the word to others, whether at home with your family. Uh, let's say you're going to be traveling or going to be visiting, getting together with other family members this uh, holiday time. You know, that's an opportunity to minister the word, uh, whether it's sharing testimonies with others in this congregation, whether it's praying together or memorizing scripture together, or going through catechism together. Right. It's it's at meals that we can do this. Maybe for you, it's writing a, a note or sending a, an email or sending a text with scripture in it. Maybe it's gently correcting wrong thinking in someone that you meet or interact with in the congregation. Maybe it's a phone call to encourage someone who's hurting. It could be at church in casual conversations before and after the services. It could be teaching a class. It could be engaging in a small group Bible study. Now, it's not that you go around quoting scripture at people, right? That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about, though, allowing the word of God to permeate your daily interactions with people, right? Because God's word is the answer to discouragement, right? Ironically, when we're discouraged or depressed, our natural tendency is to avoid being in contact with God's people. It's to run away from God's word. But that's exactly when we need it the most. And Paul knew that. And that's why he gave encouragement through the ministry of the word wherever he went. But especially here in Troas, as we're looking at this passage. So we can be certain that his talking was centered around God's word. That's just how Paul did. He had nothing else more important to share. Not his personal opinions. He shared God's truth. And we can take that as an encouragement as well we can encourage others through the ministry of the word. So now we come to the main section of this narrative, and it contains a story that's rather shocking. And as we get into this section, I, I want you to use your imagination with me this morning. And just imagine, it's a warm spring day in the seaport city of Troas. The believers have gathered together, and they're in this upper level of a tenement-type house. It's a private property of one of their members. It's where they met on a normal basis. And they're up on the third story, so they're, they're quite a bit up. The room is crowded. Every available space is, is taken. They have the guests in there as well as the normal people from that body of believers. And people are wedged together. They're filling every nook and cranny of the room. Everyone is turned out to hear the Apostle Paul, the founder of their church. He's come back for a visit. And, I, and he doesn't come through very often. They know this could be the last time. And from time to time, there's a fresh breeze blowing through the open windows. And Paul is speaking. And he's sharing God's word, and he's instructing them in the character of the Lord. He's giving them guidance in practical matters. He knows his ship is getting ready to leave the next morning. He's determined to make the most of this opportunity. And so he keeps on preaching. He pauses every now and again to dialogue with the assembled believers, to hear if they're understanding. And after a while, daylight begins to fade, but they don't go home. They're hungry to hear more. So some believers hurry off to get torches so the meeting can continue. They return with these lighted torches, they set them up in their place, and the flames are blazing brightly, and it gives more light than the common oil lamps that were used normally. And Paul then keeps right on preaching. I can imagine him looking down earnestly at those upraised faces in the room, and the 
shadowy torchlight now. There are men and women and children of all classes of society. No one protests the lateness of the hour. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. Midnight approaches. The city around them has long fallen silent. Citizens have gone to bed, but upstairs in the third story room, the torches keep burning and Paul keeps preaching. He has a feeling this is the last time he'll ever see them. Among those assembled that day is a young man named Eutychus, probably between 9 and 14 years old. We can sympathize with this young man. It's a warm spring night. The crowded room is stuffy. The torches are burning away. The oxygen supply makes it harder to breathe. And he finds himself becoming drowsy. It's not that he doesn't want to hear Paul. He does. That's why he's there. But it's way past his bedtime. And Paul is really long-winded, and the air is heavy. As the hour grows later and later, his eyes begin to droop, and his head begins to nod. And he wakes up with a jerk, and then he soon nods again. And in spite of his best efforts to stay awake, he soon falls into a deep sleep. Now, no one would have noticed a young boy slumbering away in a corner, but Eutychus is not in a corner. Eutychus is perched up on a windowsill overlooking the street below. And Eutychus, then, when he does finally fall into a deep sleep, his muscles relax, his weight shifts, he loses his balance, and he falls out the window. Before anyone can react, he plummets three stories straight down, and he hits the ground awkwardly, his body making a sickening thud, and he lies still, dead still. It all happened extremely quickly. The boy falls to the ground before anyone can grab him. Those nearby interrupt Paul's uh, discourse with cries of surprise and dismay. And I can imagine the believers nearest the door grab a torch and they rush down out of the room. And they get downstairs and they hurry to the scene of the accident. And to their sorrow, when they arrive, they find the young man lying in a crumpled heap, dead on impact. Now, at this point in the story, we could have some fun with application like safety first, never sit on a third-story window, right? Or uh, God will judge you for falling asleep during preaching, right? Some of the older commentators, by the way, are really harsh with Eutychus. Uh, like Scottish preacher Alexander White, he said, this Eutychus is the father of all such as fall asleep during sermons, right? You kind of catch a little, uh, maybe something that happened to him some. but Or you could take a different angle. Long-winded preachers are dangerous, right? That'd be another side you could take here. All right, I have a book in my library with the title of Saving Eutychus, and the subtitle is How to Preach God's Word and Keep People Awake, right? So that might make a good Christmas gift for Pastor Dan. He won't be offended, I'm sure. But, but the authors don't really think that that's the point, right? And we know that's not the point of the story. So if that's not the point, then what is the point? Well, let's continue and find out. If you can imagine, probably the people who got there first are still there surrounding the broken body of this young boy. That's a tragedy. I mean, this young boy died. And Paul arrives. Now, Luke's professional medical opinion is that the boy was taken up dead. Not just as dead or supposing him to be dead. Eutychus was dead on impact. He wasn't unconscious. He wasn't in shock. He was truly dead. As Paul approaches the body, then the others kind of part the circle to let him in, and everyone is just shocked. They're reeling about this unexpected accident, this violent death of a, a young boy. And Paul comes to where they've laid the lifeless body, but he doesn't just stand there and stare at him. He surprises everyone by throwing himself on top of the body and holding the young boy in his arms. 
and he remains in that position for a while. And then Paul abruptly stands up and he announces, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And with that, he turns and he walks back upstairs. Now, the onlookers here are, are just, can you imagine what they're thinking? I mean, what just happened here? I, I, they're puzzled. They don't know what's happened. I would imagine most of them eventually follow Paul back up to the room. Probably some stayed down to monitor the boy. And back in the third story, the, the conversation is muted, understandably, from what they just witnessed. But Paul doesn't miss a beat. He proceeds to go to serving the Lord's table and then to the fellowship meal. And then he goes right back to preaching. I mean, this is all rather shocking. You would have think the, the meeting would have broken up. And uh, all of a sudden now there's this tragic death of a young boy. And we're all going home. And we're going to mourn. Paul is so burdened to give those believers divine truth before he leaves them. The service continued all night long until daybreak. All the while, we're left wondering, what happened to poor Eutychus? Luke holds us in suspense. And finally, before he moves on, he tells us this in verse 12. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. All right, so Eutychus lived. His fatal fall was not fatal after all. Now, that's an amazing story. Uh, the name Eutychus means fortunate, and he was indeed fortunate that Paul was the preacher who put him to sleep, right? Otherwise, the story would not have had a happy ending. I'm guessing probably Eutychus didn't fall asleep in the service again for a long time, but we don't really know that. So even though many liberal theologians try to deny it, there is little doubt that Luke presents this as a true resurrection miracle. Right? And he clearly portrays Eutychus as dying and then being brought back to life by the Apostle Paul. The order of the story is important because Paul only pronounced the boy to be alive after he had embraced him. As John Polhill points out, the story belongs in the category of resurrection miracles, right? Like Jesus raising the widow's son at Nain, like Jairus's daughter, like Lazarus, like Dorcas. Right. In fact, these are striking similarities to the resurrection miracles from the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha. They were young boys. There was physical contact with the body. There was pronouncement of life. There are people now being comforted. This is not accidental. Luke is presenting Paul as a New Testament prophet, a genuine messenger from the Lord. So the main point. From the outset of this new section, Luke reminds us why Paul revisited all those churches, including Troas. He wanted to encourage those believers. You remember that word parakaleo? It means to comfort, to encourage, to uplift, to help others keep on going in their faith. Luke uses the word in verse 1 and in verse 2 of the chapter. It's showing how Paul did that primarily by spending time with those churches, by ministering the word to them, but when we come to verse 12, it's used a different way. Pericoleo again. They were not a little comforted. They were encouraged. Right now, some might say the encouragement came simply because tragedy was averted. Right. This young life was was uh, restored. But I think there's more to it than that. You see, every resurrection miracle in the Bible points people people to the greater resurrection. Right. Whether it was in the Old Testament or the New it either pointed ahead to that event or pointed back to it. When Paul raised that young man from the dead, he was giving a visual testimony of the power of Christ's resurrection in the lives of believers.
He was giving them encouragement through the resurrection. Right? Or you could even broaden it to say encouragement through the gospel. Because the gospel, we know the resurrection of Christ is the pivotal point of that. There's more here, though. We've already seen how the believers worshipped on the first day of the week. Why do we do that? Why are we here today instead of on Saturday? Because of the resurrection, right? That's the whole point of, of shifting from Sabbath to the first day of the week. And by the way, every Sunday, as you know, is a celebration of the resurrection. I hope we keep that before us. Additionally, though, uh, this happened shortly after Passover, which was right around Easter. It was right around the time when the Christians would have celebrated the resurrection of the Lord. Personally, I wonder if Paul may have been preaching on the resurrection during that long service because he preached about the resurrection continually. You find it all throughout his messages in the book of Acts. I'm certain he would have done so after the accident. He probably You don't think Paul would miss an opportunity to really draw in uh, an appropriate illustration, right? What more appropriate illustration could there be? You talk about a powerful example. Paul performed this miracle before an audience of believers for the purpose of encouraging their faith. And when he left on that ship the next day, you can guarantee they were greatly encouraged because of what they had witnessed and heard. So this principle today for us, encouragement through the resurrection is simply a further development of ministering the word. Right? Nobody here can raise someone from the dead. Okay? But we can still point people and each other to the resurrection of Christ. I think there's no other doctrine that offers more encouragement to us as believers than that of the resurrection. You think about it. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have been set free from the bondage of sin. This sinful body that we inhabit will one day be made perfect. How do we know that? Because of Christ and the resurrection. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death is not the end for God's children. We will see our loved ones again. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we will too. He promised to take us to live with him forever. We have hope because of what Jesus Christ did. Over the years, I've made the doctrine of the resurrection a subject of study for myself personally. And I found it to be a tremendous source of encouragement and comfort. Folks, life on this fallen world is often hard and bitter. It hurts. It can be discouraging. And maybe you're going through a dark valley right now. Maybe you're just emerging to the other side of something like that. Maybe you're walking alongside of someone else who is desperately hurting. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Listen, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know why the resurrection is such an encouraging doctrine? It's because it is the source of all of our hope. Without the resurrection, we are of all people most miserable. But because Christ did rise from the dead, my friend, we have hope that the world does not have. So by God's grace, let's purpose to encourage our fellow believers by pointing them to the resurrection of Christ. This is not a doctrine that we ought to just bring out every spring and dust it off, right? It's a doctrine that deserves emphasis all the time because, again, it's the heart of the gospel. And maybe God can use you to remind a fellow believer 
about these resurrection truths that will encourage their heart in the Lord. So here's what we should take away from this passage. Paul was on an encouragement tour, and he took every opportunity to encourage God's people. He did it in three ways we noticed in this story. First of all, through fellowship. My friend, utilize the fellowship God has given you at Cornerstone to really enhance and encourage and build up each other in the Christian walk. He did it encouragement through the ministry of the word. You have an opportunity to do that every day in many different ways, touching many different lives. And then we see now encouragement through the resurrection, or you could say encouragement through the gospel. So as we close, I want to challenge all of us to consider how can we encourage our fellow believers? I don't know about you, but I can easily fall into the pattern of just going through life, getting caught up in the busyness of it, right? And uh, ironically, holiday times tend to be very selfish times, don't they? We just focus on us, our vacation, what we want, right? And, and all of this, we need to be more concerned about others than ourselves. That's what Paul writes. He reminds us the way of Christ And as we look around, all around us, there are people who need to be encouraged. There are people within this body of believers. There are people outside. There are friends or acquaintances who are going through very hard times. You know, holidays also tend to be some of the loneliness and most discouraging times for people. So as we go throughout our days, let's look out, right? There's a story behind every face, wondering, thinking, praying, Lord, direct me to somebody I can encourage today. But you know what? We have to take time to talk and to listen. It may mean denying ourselves, our own desires to give priority to that, like Paul did, right? And it may be missing a meal or staying up later or uh, maybe even getting up earlier, driving, walking somewhere out of the way, right? Turning off the screen, giving up free time. But as you do, I think you'll find there are plenty of opportunities. We all have the ministry of encouragement. Right. God has given us this. Right. Paul is a good example for us. But this body needs you. God wants you to uplift others to help them keep going. So let me encourage all of us just to embrace that purpose like Paul embraced Eutychus. Let's take every opportunity to encourage God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage.